In this episode, I cover a topic in what may seem like a strange territory, Kubernetes. I have Jimmy Mesta as my guest, and we cover a fairly new OWASP project, the Kubernetes Top 10. Jimmy has spent years running Kubernetes in production since the very early days of the project and knows all about keeping workloads safe. We have a great conversation about this project, what he sees as some sharp edges for those running Kubernetes and how AppSec has changed. I really enjoyed our conversation and I think you will too. Stay tuned. Hello, and I'm here today with Jimmy Mesta. We're going to talk a little bit about Kubernetes. He started a brand new project at OWASP called the OWASP Kubernetes Top 10. Kubernetes is a big thing, so I think it's definitely worth talking about. Jimmy Mesta is my guest. Jimmy, can you give us a little bit of background for people who may not be familiar with you, where you're coming from, and the context of you and all that? Sure. Yeah. The, the context of me. So yeah, thank, thanks for having me on. My name is Jimmy, and I've been working a variety of AppSec and infrastructure jobs for the past 15 years or so. And my involvement with OWASP has spanned much of that, honestly. I started a chapter a long time ago. I helped out with AppSec California, which is where I believe I met you many years ago. And in that era, I took a path that I didn't expect, which was one of Kubernetes security. We, I was at an organization that was a very early adopter of Kubernetes and containers in general. And my job was to do compliance and security and all the things we were doing before with this new platform. And fast forward six plus years, still deep in, in that space, started a company called KSOC. You'll see me talking about Kubernetes and containers and all sorts of things in a variety of spots. And last year, decided to kickstart this top 10 project that's always been on the back of my mind for OWASP and it's gained a lot of traction and I'm happy to share more about it. Excellent. Yeah. I'm always curious what inspires people to start an OWASP project. You kind of led into it in that you have the background, but was there anything that kind of finally pushed you over the hump between, gee, I should do this and I'm going to actually pull the trigger? So during COVID times, I... A few folks, I don't even remember where it came up, but maybe I saw somebody tweet about it. But if we had a small group of people who created the Kubernetes uh, security cheat sheet, if you're not familiar for listeners, the OWASP cheat sheet series, which is kind of a deeper dive, almost how-to guide for a variety of different things. There's tons of cheat sheets and they're awesome. So we figured a natural progression would be to have one for Kubernetes because it's complicated. There's a lot of kind of knobs and levers uh, that can really be misunderstood and lead to problems in the enterprise. So the cheat sheet came first and that kind of led me to think, hey, there's probably even a higher level artifact that can be generated here that's more of a reference document in the form of a top 10. So I went through the process and just a, just an idea, you know, I had the top 10 in my mind already. I just needed to sit down and write it and why not make it an OWASP project because there's top tens for all sorts of things these days. We do have now, I guess your top 10 makes it, I think 14 top tens. So that's awesome. And, and honestly, <laughs> like it may be a little bit of a joke, but it is, these are very useful documents for people just getting into this area. If there's only 10 things I can do, what are the 10 things I can do? I'm sure 
we could elaborate to 11 and beyond, but at least it's good to sure. have some kind of initial focus. I think so. And just this week, I saw another security engineer on the East Coast. He wrote a whole Substack series like of articles on the Kubernetes top 10, like a deeper dive. And you're starting to see, I see it pop up in different kind of publications. And I, the more knowledge, the better. I, I, yeah, of course, people, there's definitely been a few snarky comments of another top 10, of course, but whatever it's you know, knowledge and reference architecture and sharing these things is really only for the benefit of the community to deconstruct something that I think is still really hard for a lot of organizations and individuals. A hundred percent agree. I think that's been one of the beauties of my time with OWASP is you find people that either have a breadth of experience or they're just really into a thing and they share that knowledge and the ramp up time for somebody who hasn't had the time in the trenches like you have it with Kubernetes gets way shorter, which is just a win for everybody, right? Who wants a bunch of misconfigured, poorly run clusters out there. My understanding of talking to people with about Kubernetes is you end up being somewhat of a YAML jockey. It's a bit tricky to do the configuration for Kubernetes, particularly if you're doing a DIY versus a cloud providers. But even if you do do a cloud providers, there's a bunch of configuration issues that you need to think about with Kubernetes. Do you want to touch into some of those things that, that pop in your head that are interesting or challenging or something you need to really think about? Yeah, you're right. Kubernetes as a project is, it's like you've got the Lego set, right? You, you know that the picture might look like, or you've built the foundation to your house, but there's a lot of things that are on you and there's varying degrees of handholding from kind of building your own clusters from scratch to running a fully managed Kubernetes environment to even some PaaS solutions that abstract away even more than managed Kubernetes would. So there's plenty of configuration that falls on the operator, whether that's a DevOps team or an SRE team or a developer, it's still important to understand where the shared security model falls, right? And it's not very different than your cloud provider, right? You can use AWS and be a government entity and be highly regulated and have all the controls under the sun in place, or you can run AWS totally irresponsibly, right? And everywhere in between. So Kubernetes is not much different. And what's interesting to me about Kubernetes is the separation of duties that kind of Kubernetes jams into one easy to use package, if you will. So when you interact with the Kubernetes API to get a task done, like spinning up an Nginx container in the form of a pod, or maybe you have a deployment or a stateful set, there's a lot that goes into that request, right? Everything from who's the caller that is asking to create this running workload. There's authentication, authorization. There's final checks before the thing actually gets scheduled. There's where is it running? What types of nodes are on this particular cluster? There's secrets management, like environment variables. There's this whole GitOps discussion that happens. And all of a sudden you have a lot of stuff going on and it's kind of a house of cards if you don't pay attention to it. If you get something wrong or have one glaring misconfiguration, it can really kind of set your blast radius to be quite large. So 
that's why the top 10 exists because it it is complicated and these things work together in unison to create a distributed system that developers build on top of, but the plumbing needs to be in check and be happy to go down some of the highlights of the top 10 and the things that kind of stick out to me and what I've seen in my journey as well. But hopefully that makes sense. That does. No, I love that. That's a great overview. And you're right. I think of it almost like a framework or, I mean, shoot, it's almost like a infrastructure as code programming language because there's so many ways that you can twist and manipulate it. And it's, it is both cool for that feature rich ability to kind of morph into lots of things, but also spooky because if I want a, but I configure B like my results won't be what I expect. Right. So there, there's a lot of work under the covers to make all that happen. That there is, yes, which is why the first, the top number one of the top 10 is insecure workload configurations, which is generic. Obviously, we do this in the top 10 all the time where we throw this misconfigured something or another in the top 10 and it's kind of a catch all, but it's everything in Kubernetes, right? YAML is just a lines and lines and lines, hundreds, if not thousands of them of configuration, something set to true, something set to false. You have ports over here, you have labels and annotations, and it's just configuration in a declarative consumable format that tells the API server to go do a thing, right? And then stores bits of that information in etcd. And that's like controllers kick in and make sure that the desired state is what you're expecting. So the first thing is like, how are my workloads configured? Even a medium-sized organization, you're talking 40 to 60 nodes, 1,000, 2,000, maybe 3,000 individual workloads in the form of pods, deployments, stateful sets, daemon sets, each of them needing their own special Snowflake configuration. Some of them have to work with the host operating system in the kernel. How do you even start the firefighting effort of forming with some sort of baseline, which is why you know, that's the pressing issue today is just misconfiguring that environment and getting to a point where those workloads are doing what they need to do and have access to what they need to have access to and nothing more. That's a still a, a super challenging thing to accomplish. Well, and then all of those workloads are basically a whole clump of containers doing containery things, right? Docker or Podman yep. or pick your container thing that you like. And you've got to think about signing and composition and like admission controls. And do you have a private registry for these containers or not? Do you want to co cover some kind of the container angles that are important when you're doing Kubernetes? Because that's a, a fundamental building block of a cluster, right? Bunch of, bunch of containers. For sure. Yeah. Bunch of containers just scattered about. Yes. There's lots of schools of thought here. There's, and I've seen varying levels of maturity all the way from, we have what I would call like a YOLO cluster where you could just run whatever you feel like running at any given moment. You could pull images from any registry and you could set them up with any security context you'd like. They can run as privileged. Nothing will stop you and nothing will be alerted and you will go about your merry way all the way to we run our own image registries. We build our own base images. We use things like DistroList or scratch base images that offer basically nothing from package perspective and library and binary perspective. They just run a single binary that is your application. And 
those containers, how they get built is really the start of the Kubernetes security model later, because if you build something from, we'll call it distro list, there is no under underlying collection of Ubuntu packages. There's no curl, there's no apt, any of that stuff. And you have a binary that just runs and you've cryptographically signed it, check that signature upon admission into the cluster, cue the supply chain bingo card. But that is, that's one really powerful way to limit what an attacker can do when that container is in a runtime state. Even if you had a web app vulnerability, remote code execution, somebody popped a shell, what are they going to do in a distroless container? Maybe something. It's for sure not impossible to imagine a pivot out of it, but why would you give an attacker more tools in their tool belt when they have a shell if you don't have to? So building those building blocks are really important to get right. And we see a ton of just images that don't do that still. It's just from Ubuntu latest, or you're pulling in like Ruby on Rails base image, or these things are very bloated. They're massive images that have tons of ancillary binaries and just things that are packaged with them that you don't even need for your application to run. So if you're going to do anything, start whittling away at that sort of sprawl of images that are just too big and pulled from unknown sources. So yeah, private image registry with something like a distro list, there's lots of varying opinions on which is best, but something minimal and only allow those in your cluster through admission control. That's a great start, right? You've reduced the noise by quite a bit and the opportunity for attackers to pivot in the runtime state. A lot of this seems to me like you have a choice, right? You can do engineering before or engineering after, but you're not going to get rid of the engineering problem. So if I do do distro lists, I may have a more interesting time creating a container if I have a complicated app that expects a lot of distro things to be laying about. But none of that is unsolvable. Mm -hmm. But it does mm -hmm. put me in a much better place. You make me remember a pen test I did where we got access to a network gear uh, on the on the edge of a network and we're sniffing the traffic and I see a telnet session happen where a DBA SSH to an Oracle database or not SSH, excuse me, telnetted to an Oracle database. And guess what? Like I got their creds. And hysterically, once I got onto that DB, it was running SSH. And I just thought, man, <laughs> if you just used yeah. Putty instead of whatever Telnet client you had, I never would have seen your credentials. But hey, bad choice and I win. And that was a fun one for me. But, you know, it's one of those things where like these minor choices can really bite you. It's a good point. You're dealing with this problem either way. So you either standardize on something earlier and obviously runtime security doesn't go away, but let's at least reduce the, like, let's make the signal to noise ratio at runtime better by setting yourself up with better images in a runtime environment that's, you know, clean of that sort of problem. So that is number one still. And, and number two also, uh, honestly, like, and the list is supply chain. Just because it's so easy to import star from star in all cases of everything these days. And we don't do a lot of checking of where things came from. And you don't, this isn't, this isn't even necessarily as complicated as I need to cryptographically sign every step of my supply chain journey. That's great. 
sure, but most organizations could benefit from saying, I don't allow images from Docker Hub. Just let's start there. It's not the end state, but I think it's a good start and gets you in the kind of mental headspace that you need to be in to run a supply chain factory internally that fits your threat model. So you don't have to go crazy off the bat. You just check and see where your images are coming from. You'd be surprised. That's why it's number two in the list. I've done some training on Docker and containers and whatnot. And one of the things I stress is if you want to just randomly pull a container from Docker Hub to play in an unimportant environment or a laptop, personal laptop, fine. But when you do this for real, you do need to build the thing. And Docker builds are not that hard, right? I don't think anyway. So why not take the extra step to at least have your own Docker file for all of the images which you want to run and not just grab that random Jenkins off of Docker Hub and assume it's fine that John random person created. Like It's a bit spooky. I like the idea yeah. of owning that. And if there's troubleshooting, if I created the Docker file, I'm probably in a much better place to troubleshoot it too. Much better. And if you're actually running a, an image scanning kind of CVE program, which everyone does to some degree these days, the biggest problem is you get this barrage of noise and these CVEs aren't fixable by you. If you're relying on upstream XYZ, your hands are up in the air and you're like, I don't know how to, I can't fix this. Well, you have to do it yourself. You're going to have to roll your own and re probably re-architect parts of your application, maybe, which if you're running Kubernetes and containers, I feel like that should be the, you know, you need to be this high to ride. <laughs> The sort of the fair ride, if you will, you should be able to write a Docker file and build a minimal base image and distribute it. So at least in my ideal world, but yeah, we'll see. Yeah. One of the other interesting sharp edges that surprised me when I learned about it with Kubernetes was secret management. The wonderful mm -hmm. secrets that come rolled into Kubernetes, and I think you know where I'm going with this, like how those secrets are stored. They certainly beat what I used to jokingly yep. call double XOR encryption. Right, XOR twice, <laughs> get the same yeah. result back. <laughs> yeah, they're certainly better than double XOR. Eight sixty four is one step. Yeah, one step better yeah. than that. Yes. <laughs> Remember arguments with developers like we're doing base sixty four. I'm like, okay, where's your key? Well, I don't have a key. I'm like, yes, <laughs> it's not really encryption without a key. That's a fundamental thing here. So we've kind of tipped our hat. So secrets in Kubernetes are base sixty four, which is pretty interesting. It's, it's the most uh, next level, hardest to crack encryption technology there is, right? So <laughs> secrets is number eight. And the interesting thing about secrets, you're right. They are the, the secret object in Kubernetes isn't, it's a fully structured supported object type and API in Kubernetes, right? You tell Kubernetes, create a secret. Here's the value. It's going to go do that. And what happens under the hood, that value it expects it to be base 64 encoded, not for security reasons, obviously it's for standardization of the string itself. And it gets placed into etcd, which is the distributed key value store that runs on the Kubernetes API typically, or your cloud manages it. And there's varying schools of thought here. You could use Kubernetes secrets safely. It's possible, but you, your burden shifts from typically at like a KMS style implementation or your cloud HSM thing, your burden is now 
how do I protect that secret in the context of Kubernetes? So it's an RBAC problem because Kubernetes, again, back to my like initial rant about everything's jammed into one system. Now you're saying, I'm going to put secrets in here because it's easy, but I also now have to make sure my RBAC is tight. I need to make sure the, the access to those secrets is very, very locked down, audited, and I'm monitoring it and it's, it's secure. And that's really hard to do in such a free-for-all environment. So Kubernetes secrets out of the box are just, you use them because they're easy and they're called secrets. That makes sense, right? You use the thing that the thing provides you and you're off to the races. But if you're really trying to implement secrets appropriately, you're going to have to probably put in a little more work, right? Because there's a whole bootstrapping process. How do you get the secret into Kubernetes secrets to begin with? Who does it? Where is it stored? There's a very popular project called SOPS, right? Secret Operations from Mozilla, where you're actually using, you're checking your secrets into Git as encrypted ciphertext, and they call the AWS KMS API to do the decryption. Maybe that's a good model. I'm not ranking it better or worse. There's HashiCorp Vault that you could run inside of Kubernetes and you have this whole identity bootstrapping process that injects the secret value at runtime of the pod. You could omit secrets altogether from your cluster and just rely on KMS. You just The pod comes up, that makes an AWS API call, gets the secret. There's all sorts of built-in identity things if you're using managed Kubernetes. It's really a choose your own adventure sort of thing, which is why it's on the top 10, because you're probably going to choose something that's not perfect. And using Kubernetes secrets out of the box could work, but you're going to have to be better at other things. And those other things are also equally as hard, if not harder to get right. So that's why secrets are forever a pain. It's turtles all the way down every time. That is definitely a key. I worked on key management as a service for Rack for a while. I worked with that team that was working on that. And you're right, man. It is not easy to solve. There's all kinds of sharp edges. And one of the things you just mentioned, right, was namespacing, which is a way to break up workloads. And then RBAC, which is a way to, in essence, provide access controls to users, right? That's what RBAC is, role-based. Those are two ways that I think it's really interesting that in some senses, a Kubernetes cluster becomes a cluster of little clusters defined by namespaces mm -hmm. and you almost have to it surprised me when i first dug into it and i was kind of figuring out what this kubernetes thing was that wow like for every namespace i have to rinse and repeat the procedures i did for the other namespace if i want to truly have that isolation and blast containment that you can get out of a well set up cluster you want to speak to that because i think that represents like a yeah. handful of your top 10. For sure. Yeah. Overly permissive RBAC configurations is number three, because the way we think about RBAC in, inside of Kubernetes, there are subjects, users, Matt and Jimmy need to do kubectl commands on this cluster. And then there are service accounts, right? Within the cluster, some dashboardy thing needs to talk to the API programmatically at regular intervals or whatever. That is handled by the Kubernetes API, and it's configured through RBAC, a combination of roles, cluster roles, role bindings, and cluster role bindings. 
what ends up happening is there's some built-in things. There's admin, cluster admin, some view built-in roles and things like that. But to build these yourself, it really, it takes an understanding of the objects you need access to and the associated verbs and the namespaces that those objects live in. So anybody who's played in this area and tried to do this correctly has kind of given up to some degree and just given more access than is needed because it's a it's hard to get the verb like down to the verb level where I only want list and I don't need get but sometimes in this namespace I need a different verb on a different object it's easier to say you get admin for this namespace done right which is potentially fine until it's not, right? Until the rogue employee or somebody accidentally checks in their kubeconfig into Git or for some reason that's compromised and all of a sudden you have access to secrets and all these other things that you didn't really want to give that person or service account. So RBAC, I think is vastly, it's complicated and can be set up correctly, but it is oftentimes just swept under the rug, which is what we're seeing a lot of today, especially. And then to your point on namespaces, like they're great logical units of isolation for workloads. You don't want your front end web tier to step on the toes of your hashing layer backend thing. And you could put them into different namespaces. Sometimes people use namespaces for developers in a multi-tenant environment where they can experiment. That team has their own namespace. So that person or I've even seen it at the feature level, like namespaces tied to Jira tickets, which is fine, but I think namespaces aren't an absolute security boundary. So they don't really help with network connectivity. Like pod and namespace A can talk to pod and namespace B unless you have something special that says otherwise. And there's some isolation of secrets in RBAC, but the minute you give somebody or something cluster admin or access to all namespaces, it kind of defeats the purpose. So I think they're not to be used as like dev and prod in the same cluster sort of namespace, but they're good to isolate users from messing up other users' workloads in, in different systems. So yeah, it's a cluster in the cluster kind of to some degree. It, it is, it, it's wild. If you think about with RBAC, Unix file permissions of POSIX ones are fairly simple. Read, write delete, user, group, other, and you get an NTFS, you get a whole nother ball of wax on top of that. And as an industry, IT hasn't done file level permissions very well, even in the simpler case of kind of traditional POSIX Unixy stuff, right? Who doesn't want to just Jamad777 and go home for the afternoon because all my problems are solved, <laughs> right? And it, it yes. seems to me that like Chamad777 is happening within Kubernetes clusters as well. It's just now, like you said, your cluster admin and suddenly, you know, Bob's your uncle. Like, yes, all the permission problems go away, <laughs> but God help you if somebody gets a hold of that. Well, in, in the top 10, we had a contribution that's just like a couple weeks ago on the list permission, the list verb specifically, and the dangers of the list verb. It's crazy. If you want to grant list, you're also allowing get transparently under the hood. And there's a really good example in the top 10 that we had a contribution of. And it's like, even when I read it, I was like, I definitely didn't realize list did that. It's just why, and, and why should we expect, can you think about that granular of an, an RBAC permission and then multiply it times 
50 namespaces and maybe 20 clusters. Why would you expect the security team to handle that, right? It's not the right way to to think about RBAC at a larger scale if you're dealing with individual verbs and these weird bypass scenarios, these corner cases. So the whole world is all about identity lately and access control and things. I think like we've just kind of ignored Kubernetes because it's a pain in the butt. Well, it's just layers and layers of viewpoints. And I remember when I, like I said, I was kind of getting my hands around Kubernetes, like thinking, okay, if I'm at a pod, there's a certain security context, but if I'm a node, there's a different security context that I have to consider and configurations around both of those things. And then a namespace has also configuration and other considerations around it. So there's all these different, I mean, like talking about Kubernetes as a whole is almost meaningless, like saying the internet is secure. Like, well, the internet is just a whole bunch of random computers all yeah. tied together. It's like saying cloud security, right? That's a fairly sweeping statement because at this point, there's projects and big companies focused on one little part of cloud security. It's like cloud trail anomaly detection thing. And you're like, it, it's all there. Like you can't really generalize Kubernetes security that easily. There's too much going on. The amount of digging into the weeds you have to get to, like a perfect example, one thing that I got from reading the top 10 was the host PID true. I don't recall that option, honestly, the last time I looked at Kubernetes, but what it gives you is pretty exciting for a simple Boolean. Suddenly I can, I lose the whole containerization. I only see my own PIDs. Now I see the host PIDs. That's quite interesting. And, and it's one it, Boolean yeah. out of how many Booleans? <laughs> uh, exactly. And it it's like privilege true, right? Which we've kind of come to the conclusion as a security industry that when we see privilege true or insecure true, avoid it. But that doesn't mean that you're not pulling in some random project from the internet that you want to run because it's, everyone says to run it and it requires privilege true. You have to run this stuff sometimes. And what ends up happening is a container quickly becomes not a container and without you really knowing what that means. So there's quite a number of examples of this where a shell was, somebody found a shell and you realize you're in a privileged container. You're not in a container. You're on the host at that point. Yes, technically it still looks and feels like a container, but you chain root in, into the host and you're just root on the node, which is container container breakout is, is super concerning. If you are root on the node of a, a production Kubernetes cluster, you're in control of not just that cluster, but potentially parts of their cloud. Because there's AWS is doing stuff in that cluster. Like you could very reasonably pivot out of the context of Kubernetes and be doing stuff in owning their cloud account, which is super concerning. Oh, heck yeah. I mean, that that's one of the things that's quite spooky about it. And I know you've done a ton of training on Kubernetes. And like I said, my experience with reading it was it just felt like there was no end of, well, let me put it this way. I had to get way into the weeds before I could start thinking intelligently about it. Now, I'm curious when you've done Kubernetes training, which you've done a bunch of, how mm -hmm. do you approach that? Do you do, it feels to me like you'd almost, at least the way I learned it, which worked for me, but may not work for everybody else universally, but I got way into the weeds like down to the configuration at all these different YAMLs that you have. 
and then looked at those settings to say, what does this really do in the context of a cluster, like our host PID thing I just used, right? It, mm -hmm. But I didn't understand that until I understood the context in which that Boolean is available. And so how do you handle that as a trainer? It's got to be kind of interesting to bring people up to speed. Yeah, it's for me, and I have trained a lot of people at this point, it was a, a learning process over the years to see what stuck. But for me, everyone wants to dive into Kubernetes first, because maybe it's exciting and hot, but really where the journey starts is at the kernel. Like what is a container even really doing? Because those YAML configurations, they aren't really specific to Kubernetes. Yes, they're consumed by the API, but they're available in Docker. They're available in your container runtime of choice. So it's better to like forget about Kubernetes for a little bit and just be like, here's how a container is supposed to work. And here's why it's not a virtual machine. Very simply, the classic like hypervisor box slide that's like everyone shows, but to start there shows the true nature of this like multi-tenant shared kernel ecosystem that we're in, that it's not running like an OS on your laptop. It's not running a virtual machine in virtual box. It's a different kind of construct. So it's very much, it works to start there for me, especially. And you're basically spawning a process inside of it, the same container OS or the, excuse me, the same OS that your container is running is you just are relying on a whole bunch of kernel config to make that thing constrained to contain it. That's the whole point of containers, yep. but that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And when you, that's why container breakout in Kubernetes, you're on the host of that node, you see all there's nothing left unturned once you're there that the walls are gone and you are, you have things available to you like the kubelet and other internal Kubernetes kind of components that they're just pr a process on the host too. And if you want to be the kubelet, you can, which is why, yeah, starting with container 101 stuff and then really showing what the implications of a privileged true flag means for a container, I think that sticks with people to some degree. That's definitely true. It's interesting how intertwined they are because so much of Kubernetes is that that container. You really have to know both. So going forward, what's next for the Kubernetes top 10? Are you looking for contributions? What's the sort of, do you have a next phase in mind? What's up for the project? There's some folks that are translating it into different languages, which I think is really cool to see. I think what we need is contributions for attack examples. That's always the hard one to get really nitty gritty details. Like this, this RBAC one was awesome. We saw a couple more. I'd love to have contributions in line with like real world examples. Those are always fun. Like something happened. Here's an article on how it happened to hacker one report or whatever, and really keep the ball rolling. I'm even game to reorder this stuff. If somebody comes and is like, Hey, I think the first iteration of a top 10 isn't, we're not as mature as the OWASP AppSec, the, the original top 10, where you're going and like asking thousands of developers surveys and things. The next iteration is let's have a survey. Let's actually make sure this is the order of operations that is agreed upon to some subset. So any contributions are awesome. And I love seeing people include it in other reference material. And this is 
grown to be, I think we have 12 or 13 contributors and hopefully that just kind of grows naturally and doesn't, I don't want it to die in the vine. That's my goal, right? Like a lot of OWASP, I love OWASP and the projects, but there's so many of them that are just like people hit them and then they don't come back. As you know, my goal is to keep this one going because it's important and the Kubernetes ecosystem, the folks in that community are not always the same folks that work in the OWASP community. And I feel like this brings those two together in a good way. So I'm going to just keep evangelizing it. Awesome. Yeah. I love the cross-pollination because you're right. There's a an aspect of ops that maybe may not be, OWASP may not be as appealing to that. Oh, there's certainly a lot of ops, DevOps, or whatever you want to call them. Back in the days, we called them sysadmins, whatever, the terminal junkies. They're going to, they may or may not care or be involved in much of what OWASP has to offer. But honestly, this is where our workloads are going, what our apps are running on, what a lot of people are designing for with greenfield development. So having that uh, environment in which your app lands actually be secure. This is like the, the good old days of like, I wrote this rock solid application and it runs on a server that's unpatched. At the end of the day, yeah. attackers don't care if I, they burn the infrastructure or your app, they just want to get something. Yeah, AppSec has changed. Like you can't just be an application security engineer focused on the code written and that's it. And it runs in this special unicorn place. For better or worse, you, infrastructure and cloud are part of AppSec at this particular moment in history. So I think the more the merrier when it comes to kind of bringing those worlds together, because that's what the modern AppSec professional needs. You're not going to go very far running static analysis scans and wiping your hands clean and calling it a day if you want to really progress. Yeah, well, and it's kind of like your turtle's all the way down, but this time with scanning, right? Because I'm scanning the code, I'm standing SCA, I'm doing Coop container, running container, image container scans, Kubernetes scans, right? You could like scan all the things, right? And it certainly mm -hmm. isn't getting less complex. So I appreciate you distilling some of your knowledge and getting the, if nothing else, getting a document where the community can then focus its efforts on improvement. I've noticed this a lot with OWASP over the years. You almost need that iteration one to start, I'm going to call it an argument, but it's not an argument. Let's go. It's really discussion. And I'm very happy that you did iteration one. So now we have something to talk about and to improve over time. That's the, one of the powers of the OWASP community. It is. Oh yeah. It's not perfect. I'm not perfect. That's why it should be out in the world and not in a blog post that I wrote. That's not the appropriate place for something like this. I appreciate you having me on and talking about it. And if anybody wants to learn more, um, I know Twitter is not the place to be anymore. I need to figure that out for myself, but Jim, <laughs> yeah, Jim messed on Twitter or just like Jimmy at KSOC.com, or you could just check out the actual project in GitHub and put an issue in a comment, whatever. Excellent. So I'm going to blindside you. I forgot to warn you about this. So just, you know, heads up. I do this thing at the end All of right. every podcast where I have a deck of cards that have these Okay. Completely unrelated questions on them. They're sort of be conversation starters. So I like to throw in a random, completely un-Kubernetes thing at you. So I've shuffled these. All I'm right. going to pick one off the top. Let's see which one you get. Oh, this is a fun one. I haven't seen this one before. So if you could identify with one fictional character from a book, show, or movie, who would it be? Oh, identify. And it has to be fictional. Okay. Eh. I'm loose, All like right. I'm the enforcer yeah. here. It doesn't have to be fictional. Yeah, I'm just such a bad 
pop culture person. People make fun of me all the time. I know basically zero movies. Let's see. So yeah, what, what jumped into my head, and it's a terrible one, is like Christopher Robin from Winnie the Pooh. That's only because my children are watching it basically on loop for the past three days because they're at home <laughs> sick. So he's kind. I think he's, you know, keeps the gang together and pretty great imagination. So yeah, we'll go with Christopher Robin as nice. lame as what? that is. No, it's not lame. He's good, actually. I think of, like that you have the different strong characters of Tigger, Pooh, uh kanga and all that other business and he is the like the unifying force right he's almost like the he really is he is oh man yeah oh yeah <laughs> and i think maybe i'm you know with the startup that going through yeah maybe that's how i feel like christopher robin so we'll, we'll stick with it you got to hurt all the cats right that's part of startup life it, it really is well, I, I super appreciate your time. This was very interesting. And please go get involved if you're listening to this and you've got a wild hair about Kubernetes. I think contributions are fantastic and Jimmy would love to have them and OWASP would love to have them. So thank you again for your time. And this has been fantastic. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. I'd like to thank No Name Security for making it possible for me to record this episode. NoName is a complete and proactive API security platform that protects APIs in real time and detects vulnerabilities and misconfigurations before they can be exploited. NoName is an out-of-band solution that integrates with your existing infrastructure to provide deeper visibility and security. Please give them a look. <laughs>